Welcome back, all my lovely podcast listeners. You found your way back for the newest episode of the What the Niche podcast with your ever-grateful host, Andrew Morris. It's exciting to be back for my second new episode of the year, and today's show delves into some uncharted territory, so I'm stoked for all of you to hear it. Now, before we get into the nit and gritty, I have a couple announcements and a few shout-outs. First, my boys Brian Rodman and Jeremy Woodring are back at it with Season 3 of the Dastardly Dingoes podcast. Their show info is in the episode description. Second, former guest Myron Collins, or more well-known as Mage of Pain, has dropped his new album called Generation Z, and it's available on all streaming platforms. I highly recommend checking out the song Wildlife. It's an absolute banger. As for announcements, I want to remind all of my listeners that I officially launched a channel for the What the Skit podcast last week. You can find it on all the podcast hosting platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, Google, and so on. Before we move on to the episode today, let me continue to express my gratitude for all of you who continue to support the show. Thank you. Now, it's on to this week's episode. In this week's episode, we are sitting down with someone who may give some of our listeners nightmares, because today our guest comes from the world of dentistry. As a record number of private jets descended on Davos last month for the World Economic Forum, the anti-poverty nonprofit Oxfam released its annual inequality statistics. According to Oxfam, the 26 richest people on Earth, just over the seating capacity of the Bombardier 7500, have the same net worth as the poorest half of the world's population, some 3.8 billion people. But a major discovery of medical research in recent years has been that inequality doesn't just weigh on those below. The biggest effects are on the poor, but the vast majority of the population uh, does less well if they're in a more unequal society. Epidemiologists Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett document this claim in their latest book, The Inner Level. Yes, economic growth drives greater contentment, happiness, but only to a point. In the rich developed world, economic growth is no longer buying as gains in health and happiness. And so as poor countries get richer... Things get better. And then if you have inequality or increasing inequality in that country, then you're going... You will not be doing as well as the other rich countries. It's the difference between the U.S. and Scandinavia, says Pickett. If you and I have equal education, the same incomes, um, the same wealth, the same social class, if you live in a more equal society than I do, you are more likely to live longer, your children to be healthier, less likely to do drugs or drop out of school, Everything about your world is going to be better. Consider mental illness, which Pickett and Wilkinson first linked to inequality a decade ago. Since then, I think we're seeing an epidemic of mental illness in the most unequal rich developed countries. About 80% of our young people feeling incredibly stressed, many of them suicidal, many of them hurting themselves. And of course, it's not just the young, says Pickett's husband. 
In Britain, three quarters of the population feel overwhelmed by stress and unable to cope. Third, three quarters? Three quarters. quarters. This third. is a large sample? Yes, I mean, yes, yeah. yes, from the Mental Health Foundation. Yeah. A third of the population have had suicidal thoughts in the last year. What? And the figures in the US are pretty similar. About 20% of your population have diagnosable mental illness at any one time. How does it work? So we judge each other more by status in a more unequal society. And with that goes more worries about how we are seen and judged. The effects are biggest among the poor, but they go right across to the, you know, the top tenth, 10% of the income distribution. It affects our physiology, our hormones, the way we think, the way we behave. And those changes have been linked to a range of mental illnesses that we know are related to income inequality. What impact upon quality of life can be found in where you're born, who your parents are, or the socioeconomic status to which you're thrust into? In the relay race of life, does the firing of the gun find you at the same starting block as everyone else? The truth of the matter is many of us aren't holding the winning lottery ticket when we emerge from the comforts of our mother's womb. The plights many face because of sheer happenstance of existence leave some questioning the fairness associated with this game of chance. I think we should all learn to frame the board so every player is allowed an equal opportunity. I know you can feel the soapbox begin to elevate as a shadow of the uncomfortable conversation casts its icy shade over you. But zip that coat up and prepare yourself for a discussion we can no longer continue to avoid. Bullets of disparity will continue to fly overhead until one day the shot of equality pierces through your body. No longer can we stand idly by and watch the fallout of the crossfire. For eventually the ashes will leave gray stains on our faces, with the ash and tears singing in silent reverie for the death of the Phoenix of Hope. Day in and day out, lives are torn asunder. Improper or insufficient care creating holes in the familial units and you become a piece of a collateral damage, being caught amidst the shrapnel of a broken system which allows those casualties to bleed out in the street, while others sit under comfortable umbrellas with martinis, acting as casual spectators to a show they pretend to never have seen. And yet the truth persists, regardless if it has an audience. And it's our job to give it an opportunity to shine on the big screen. We need it shimmering and bright lights on the marquee, plastered all over every billboard along the highway, cranked to 11 on every station of consciousness. Shrouded denial can no longer be an option. So as I step down from this now skyscraper sized soapbox, I hope we can at least agree it's our collective job to take care of one another. All the other bullshit can kick rocks.
You may be saying to yourself after hearing that intro, what in the world does that have to do with dentistry? (laughs) Well, our guest David Schulte will cover that in our extensive conversation. But first off, I have to tell you, he is a father, husband, professor, and a great dentist. In our chat, we cover a variety of topics from college basketball, the impact of poverty on healthcare, to the importance of keeping an open mind and thoughtful discussion. I think this episode surprised me more than any other because I wasn't sure what to expect, but David did a great job of exceeding any I may have had. I hope you enjoy this wonderful talk. Yes, uh, I am uh, Dr. David Schulte. Um, I'm a dentist uh, working in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I'm a 2007 University of Louisville Dental School graduate, a 2002 Vanderbilt University biomedical engineering graduate. Um, I have been working in Louisville since uh, 2007. Um, I bought my practice in 2016. Um, my practice has uh, 15 employees. Um, we are a, a pretty broad family practice uh, group. Um, we have three dentists, four hygienists, um, a whole slew of support staff. Um, some days I feel like um, a mother hen um, having to herd, herd the kittens around. Um, but uh, I made it a point over the years to um, really put my, my patients first um, to keep everything focused on them. And, and generally that helps me have everything else fall into place. Um, I, I work with my father, um, who I bought the practice from. He, uh, is a 1977 university of Louisville dental school grad, um, and, uh, started the practice 1979. So we have a huge patient base over, over 40 years. Um, since I bought the practice, brought my, my wife in, she is my HR director. Um, and front office uh, assistant and, and general savior on some days. Um, I have three children, uh, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. Um, they keep us super busy. Um, although this last three or four months with COVID, cutting out uh, all their activities has kind of made my life a whole lot, you know, a whole lot simpler. Um, I'm a big, big-time sports fan, uh, UofL football, basketball, season ticket holder. Um, that was my main uh, splurge when I, when I graduated from school. I said, uh, you know, I, I don't need big, fancy trips. I don't need a big, fancy car, but got to follow my cards. Um, I, you got to uh, stop there. You didn't tell me that before we started this talk. As a Kentucky uh, fan, it's just – I just don't know how we can do this. <laughs> well, I, I've learned to be judicious. Um, being a Louisville fan over the last, you know, whatever, two or four years, you gotta, you gotta bite your tongue sometimes because <laughs> there's really no defense against strippers and blow. Uh, you know, there's when that, when that comes out in the public, you just sort of roll with it. But uh, whatever's happened on the court, I, I've been there to support them. Uh, even during these down years, I, I'm dragging my, my, well, seven, eight, nine year old son to the, to the games because nobody else was going with me. Cause you know, uh, when uh, you got a team with, 
no future, you know, sometimes you got to teach the past, you know, that kind of thing. But well, yeah, I we're, have, uh, I think they like have a good said, leader right now too. Uh, I think Chris Mack is going to take that basketball program in a good direction. And I think that the, the players really seem to believe in him. Um, he spoke at a local thing for the schools about drugs and things of that nature. And I'm telling you right now, interestingly enough, it kind of shows the, uh, the dynamic in our youth. Uh, they had the mayor who spoke. Uh, the kids did not stop talking for the mayor. <laughs> You're like, it's the mayor of the city. And they're like, blah, 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 blah. There's still little ramblings and whatnot. Chris Mack gets up there and you can tell that he works with kids because we don't like to think of college kids as kids. They're still 18, 19 years old. They're still children, uh, realistically. So he knew how to handle it. He goes, yeah, don't worry. I'll wait. And got real quiet. Ah. And then the arena, whoo, he pulled that teacher trick and it was, it was great. And every kid was on his every word because he just knew how to talk to people their age. And I'm not saying anything against the mayor. He just knew how to work that age demographic. Uh, so I think he's a great leader. I think Chris Mack is good for that program. I, I can't hate I completely agree. Um, I've met both he and Rick Patino, you know, just in passing real, real. And, and you can just tell the, honesty that is Chris Mack that Rick Pitino, you know, he'll, he, he would put on his show for the two minutes you talk to him and then boom, you're out of, out of sight, out of mind. But Chris yeah. Mack seems like a guy and, and heck Christy Mack being a, a local, you know, she grew up in the South end, went to, to Holy Cross. Um, they really want to be here for the rest of their lives is, is what you can tell. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm happy that, that Louisville has cleaned up the rack. That university was a hot mess. Mm-hmm. Um, between James Ramsey and, and all the other, you know, in the Tom Church era. Um, yeah, they did a lot of good stuff, but yeah. they were, they were pretty slimy in the process. Um, right. So I think that across the board, Dr. Benaputi is fantastic for that university and, and having somebody kind of insightful like her and, and um, you know, getting Vince Tyree to, to, you know, step away from his, you know, his investment company to say, Hey, look, can you do something for this community? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, even though he's a UK grad, um, yeah. but he is the son of a U of L legend and he, you know, grew up here and whatnot. So I just think that, that, uh, yeah, it, it's brighter days are ahead of us, but we, we got to weather whatever storms are still coming. Cause who knows, you know, Adidas gets involved with the FBI and, and, you know, Louisville's got to deal with another round of that stuff. So, um, regardless, you know, the kids on the court, they don't need to be punished. And I think that since they've cleaned house, hopefully they'll, they'll kind of skate on that to some extent. Yeah. So. Agreed. But well, yeah, nice. as, as I'll tell you, as as a dentist in the South End, um, I would say seven or eight out of ten of my patients are are UK fans. So I bite my tongue all day long <laughs> when I'm talking one way or the other. And and I'll, I'll tell you, I used to be a hater uh, during the early Calipari days. Um, I really couldn't well, I couldn't stand Cal. I couldn't stand him at UMass. I couldn't stand him at Memphis. And when he rolls into Kentucky, it's like three strikes, you're out. But and then. <laughs> You know, all this stuff with, you know, say DeMarcus Cousins and the John Wall era, those those players were pretty, pretty dirty. Now, the last, you know, five or six years since the Carl Towns seasons, those kids, they, they're, they seem to be pretty good kids. And I think Cal has kind of changed his his mentality a little bit to, you know, recruit guys that aren't, you know, those big head cases and, you know, the big, you know, Maybe it's because Duke rolls in and starts stealing some of the, you know, the, the top two or three players, that kind of thing. So yeah. when you're getting that second tier of elite kid, you know, you can kind of coax him a little bit. And, but yeah, the, 
the last couple of years, like the, the Bam Adebayos and the Devin Bookers and all those kids, like the, they're, they're, they're fun to watch. And so I can't knock, you know, the program for that. Right. Um, but yeah, what I hate is, is when I, I have uh, my, almost all my support staff is UK fans and all my providers are U of L grads. So um, they, there is this kind of like hierarchy, like, well, I can't talk trash about them because I need those girls to, you know, keep the, the you know, the, 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 the train rolling. Um, so, yeah, we, we have, and it's, it's we, we keep it fun though. Every Friday start for the school year is spirit day. So you can wear, you know, if you're, we had one girl one time that worked for us. So she was a Purdue grad. So she's wearing her Purdue stuff in there. You know, the other one's wearing Western, but it's like either U of L or UK, you know, you wear your t-shirts and, you know, just show your pride and, and okay. You know, you can, you can be your blue people and we'll be our red people and we'll get along. Right. And for people outside of this area, uh, if you're not familiar, uh, here in Louisville or Kentucky, the state in general, uh, the, the rivalry is real, son. Uh, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily a uh, pro sports state. Uh, a lot of people like my friend, I have some friends from new England. I have some friends from Chicago. Uh, and they're like, you know, are you watching the, the college basketball? And they don't pay any attention to it until the tournament. That's just not a thing. You know, when you have multiple pro teams in your city, you know, it's just a big difference. So, like, uh, we don't watch kids play sports. Uh, we're, we're over here watching the pros. So, it's it's interesting to see, be on the outside looking in as to the, uh, what the fandom looks like here, uh, especially with college basketball. We definitely live in a little bubble here. Uh, Kentucky and Indiana and North Carolina, those are the college basketball states. And, you know, every, the Duke and Carolina rivalry gets a lot of press because those two teams are great. Mm-hmm. Both of those schools are phenomenal schools and, and not to knock U of L and UK, but they're both what third tier national research in, institutions, if even that highly ranked. Yeah. But there's something in the water around here that makes people pay attention to sports. You know, every year they show the the ratings for the NCAA tournament and, and Louisville, Lexington, Cincinnati, and Dayton, Ohio, Indianapolis, those are your top five rated markets every single year. So we consume sports here like nowhere else. Um, maybe because we don't have sports to go to. We don't have, you know, Louisville being a, a, our big metro area is still a, a small town mm-hmm. um, or a small city, a big town, whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, but you're right. That, that outside, you know, you go up the Northeastern corridor, like who cares about college basketball? Well, we do. We pack more people yeah. into our arenas. If you count UVL and UK, than they put in a Madison square garden for a basketball season. You know, it's, it, there's, there's numbers here. We just don't have the the money to pay pros. We don't have any fortune 500 companies real. I mean, we have yum and we have, um, you know, a couple of these, but we don't have the, the tech companies, the billionaires to buy a franchise and bring it here or anything of that sort. So we get left behind and we get our, our college sports. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it's uh, fun because you're already demonstrating that you're more than just a guy who puts things in your mouth to put it oh, a yeah. weird way, <laughs> a guy yeah, with that- a drill who gives you nightmares. Um, so we'll dive right into the conversation, man, because I, I'm, I'm excited for you to talk about some of these things that, uh, you know, myself included, uh, there's probably a ton of assumptions that people make or, uh, negative assertions that people put it your way because you are a dentist, uh, and because they have those, those negative connotations associated with you, uh, as we talked about before the podcast started. Um, so what of those things can you say that you've been presented with and maybe that you can help lay to rest? Well, 
Right. Um, the, the, the big thing that I learned very early on, and, and like I said, I worked, uh, my, worked for my dad um, as a dentist for seven years before I bought the practice. Um, but even before that, between me realizing I didn't want to work in engineering and that I was going to become a dentist, um, I came to and worked at his office for a year and a half. I did a summer and then I did uh, a year of prereq courses um, before I could qualify for dental school. And I worked as a dental assistant. The, the low rung on the totem pole, um, just fresh. I, I've, I've hired girls fresh off the street. They make $10, $12 an hour. That's, that's what I was making back in, in 2001. And I sat there with, with no real dental training as just a, another basically civilian that I was learning how to you know, suck spit and, and pass instruments and just what each procedure was. And I'd talk to these people. And that's when it really dawned on me that, that these aren't patients. These aren't clients. These are people sitting here. And, um, I think a lot of there's, there's, it's like a 50, 50 mix. Some patients roll in and think of us as the, you know, these godlike you know, doctors, cause there's the God complex in the, in the medical world that the, you know, the doctors, I, what I say is right. And, and some patients are oh, whatever doctor you just, yeah, I trust you, you do whatever. And the other half are completely skeptical that what we're telling them, you know, this is the WebMD crowd, the ones that have pre-diagnosed themselves. <laughs> and so when I start, yeah, you got to decipher who is who right off the bat. Um, and, and then the other side of it is the, the anxiety. Um, there was a generation or multiple generations. They're all in their late fifties and sixties on up now that as children, their dentists were horrific to them. Um, they're through to like the seventies or so dentists just didn't believe children could feel in their teeth like adults do, which is completely nonsense. Um, and so they just, I oh, kid, you're just acting up, sit down and shut up. And so they traumatized an entire generation, which then that, that generation traumatized their kid. Oh, it's not going to hurt. You, you, sit, you know, and so you get multiple generations with this kind of misconception of what's going on here. Um, when I was in dental school, I used to tell my patients, I have to flip on my light to get checked off to move to the next step. Um, or what a procedure I'm doing. And I'd say, uh, I'm going to turn that light off for a second. We got the old white haired guy. You don't want to talk to him. The more white hair you see on a guy right now, the less he's going to help us. So then I'd, you know, I'd switch the light back on and find the, the woman or the younger, younger guy that sort of has a little more compassion, a little more empathy. And, and that's, I think, the big thing that, that some, you know, some people just don't think dentists have empathy. They see him as the, the sadist or you know, whatever. And, and, or, and, and Wow, uh, I don't know that. That's I've, definitely not my my approach. <laughs> I don't I, know that I've ever called a dentist a sadist, but damn, <laughs> or a masochist. I get them mixed up, but anyhow, but yeah, there there are 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 there are people out there that believe the dentists are here to hurt them, and that that's all the dentistry is. And I think that's probably the biggest misconception. The and and like I was saying, when when I have somebody that's anxious, where I'm telling them they need a root canal, okay you don't have heart disease, you don't have cancer, you need a root canal. I understand you've never had one before and your, you know, Auntie B has told you, don't get root canals, it's just going to break your tooth or, or something of that sort. I say, listen, I know the way I do things, I know the way they used to be done and I'm going to change your mind in, in how this dental, dental procedure works. And sure enough, I, you know, I, I prep them and I talk through things way more than I probably should. Um, I'd say all the time, I'd be a u horrible used car salesman. And ironically, um, I had a used car salesman in the other day and he's needing a new denture. And he's like, how much is it going to cost? How would you get to give me? And he's talking a mile a minute, like a you know, carnival barker. I'm like, slow down, dude. 
I don't have these kind of skills. I don't negotiate like you do, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the best setup you've got for the best price I can do. My, my, my front office staff manages all the billing. I do the dentistry. I'm going to make it right for you. That's all you have to worry about right now is you're sitting here with a bib on. You're not making this big, you know, multi-thousand dollar decision. You do that at home or you do that with my, my office you know, management staff. But when I'm here in this room for me with you, trust me, I got you. This is going to be all good. And, and nine out of 10 people are like, I'm glad you told me that. I'm glad you broke down that procedure in three or four steps. And, and so I can expect what's going on. Because uh, that, that's what I, I think the big misconception is, the mystery, this aura of, of what's going on here. Um, Dentistry is not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. I, I live next door to a vascular surgeon that will, you know, sew your, your heart back together and your spleen all at the same time. Um, he is another level of, of intelligent that I'll, I'll never dream to. And more than that, the focus. But what I'm better at is you, he can't have a conversation with you if he's not talking about his craft or his kids. Um, and, and what I have found pretty early on in dentistry, and that's where I go back to where I was sitting there um, my first summer working as an assistant for my dad, talk to the people like they're people and they'll respond to you like they're people. Um, but when you start talking to them in, in their technical lingo that they don't understand and that you, you know, keep everything, you know, at the, is this like doctor with this powerful privilege, that's where, you know, a lot of dentists get a bad rap. But when, when I figured out, okay, this guy is, you know, I understand what his problem is and I got to convince him that this is the way to go. But hey, it, when it comes to the end of the day, it's your decision. And I'm not here to tell you you're, you're wrong. I'm here to tell you what I believe in my professional opinion is the best thing to do for you. And that kind of trust that I can build with people is what makes my practice run. Um, if I'm pulling the wool over people's eyes and upcharging and, and overdiagnosing, it's going to come back and bite me. Um, and you know, I, I've, I've never been that kind of dentist. And I never will be mainly because I never had the pressures that, that some other dentists have. Um, nowadays, dental school graduates uh, get out of school with over a quarter million dollars of debt. If they're an out-of-state student, some, somewhere close to $400,000 of debt at Jeez. 26 years old. Right. <sighs> and so when they go into practice, they are motivated to make money as much as they can. I had, uh, I had scholarships and I had, I had uh, loans and whatnot. But when, when I graduated in 2007, um, I had about $80,000 of debt. And I was able to consolidate that into a tiny little, little uh, interest rate. Um, and so I've never had issues with, with dollars, even though I know dollars, money dictates dentistry for a lot of people. It doesn't necessarily dictate the way I'm going to do dentistry because um, I'm not, you know, not trying to pull wool over your eyes and I'm not trying to hurt you just to get the job done. I'm going to make sure that, you know, we're, we're on the same page. So sort of my sentiment. while we're on that, that's, that's a really interesting point. I've always wondered this, uh, you know, they said, they've said that um, college tuitions have went up by 800% uh, since the eighties. Um, do you think that that is a hindrance to the efficacy of, the medical profession and things of that nature, because to me, it feels as though, like you said, there's so much pressure. You get doctors that are more worried about um, numbers and things of that nature. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, my buddy, uh, he's a Navy member. Uh, he was on the podcast as I talked to about you, uh, about him to you before the podcast started, Dustin Sutherland. And he had said he went to the VA and he had been having issues. Um, for a while. 
and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on, you know, because he would be in there for five minutes. Uh, and the doctor would come in, uh, I'm looking at your chart. I see this, this, and this. Uh, it's got to be this. And he's like, well, no, they've already treated me for that. Oh, oh yeah, I see that here. Um, probably, if it's not that, it's this. <sighs> they've already treated me for that, too. <sighs> uh, and they just didn't want to give him any time. So he went into the VA, and that guy is not paid on a per-patient basis. You know, he's getting he has a base salary. Because he's the a member of the military, so based upon his rank, that's what he gets paid. So that doctor didn't give two shits about getting Dusty out the door as quickly as he could. He sat down with him for two hours, went through every little thing. He's like, "What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? What about this? Well, do you think this is related to that?" And and gave him this thorough thing, and weird that he figured out what was wrong with him. Because he was willing yeah, to take that, the time, and he humanized that, him, much like you said. That the VA is a very interesting world, um, mm. and and what you're talking about, I have dentists that that um, are dental friends that are are employed by the VA, and it's the best gig going. Um, these you know these dentists they got out of school, you know, 26, 28 years old, they sign on to be the VA dentist, and basically you've got that job for life. That right off the bat they make you know, six figures and they get, um, federal retirement, federal benefits, federal retirement, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, they have none of the pressures. And, and once somebody gets to their chair, anything that needs to be done gets done. Oh man, that would, that would be a dream of mine. Um, I, I joke all the time that I look at my charts. I'm like, there's $10 million in these charts, just all this work that <laughs> yeah. needs to be done that people won't do. But yeah, at, at the VA, you're right. It's, yeah, uh, it's like the uh, uh, you know free medicine basically for them and or free dentistry because they they get to walk in there now. The catch twenty two is there is such a small percentage of them that really actually qualify for that kind of treatment. And there's a lot. I see tons of vets that are like, oh, and they won't see me down there. Like, well, did you retire the right way and all this and that? You know, so you have to have you know your your you know the right kind of discharge and maybe you needed a medical discharge or something of that sort. Um, but in the dental world. Uh, and, and this has been happening in the medical world for a couple of decades. The dentistry is probably three or four decades behind what's going on in, in medicine. Um, but if you look at, like your primary care physicians, hardly any of them work by themselves anymore. My kid's pediatrician, um, about he, he was an older guy who had had his own practice over in St. Matthews for decades. And as he got closer to retirement, he just said, all right, I'm selling to Norton's. And now they're a Norton's pediatric practice. They have their own name, but all the billing and all the HR goes through Norton. So all of his employees got a new boss and it's a corporate boss. Well, in dentistry, uh, because of the way insurance works, um, insurance and dentistry is kind of a misnomer. Um, what you could best kind of describe dental insurance as a discount plan. Um, yeah. <laughs> whereas your homeowner's insurance, your car insurance, your health insurance, you have a deductible, right? You read, okay, you got $5,000 deductible after you've paid that out. And then you're, you know, all the other knick, knick knack stuff, they'll cover everything. You have a catastrophic heart attack. You're in a car wreck. You have a stroke. You know, you might run up a hundred thousand dollars of bills. You're only responsible for that five, you know, first five or seven or $10,000 of it. Well, dentistry, like I said, I look at my charts, there's 
I, I could put $10,000 into anybody's mouth. Like, you know, even with great teeth. Okay, you could get Invisalign, you could get veneers, whatever. But uh, the insurance companies obviously won't allow that. They give you a yearly cap. They give you maybe 1000 to maybe $2,500 uh, of cap uh, that they will pay out each year. And so uh, we've got to work within that parameter most of the time. And so once you've reached that cap, you're responsible for everything else. So say you, know, you're, you have no teeth and you're having trouble chewing, you're having GI problems because you're not you know, chewing your food the right way, um, and you're on, say you're on Medicare, that's your problem. They're, they're not going to pay for your denture. And so now you have to come up with the, you know, $2,500 for a set of dentures or, or you end up going to, um, you know, sure fit dentures and get the, get the 349, you know, a pop or whatever, or you go to a, a managed care. It's called a DSO. So the, in, in medical, there's the managed care organizations, the MCOs and the dental world, it's, it's the DSO. So what's going on is there are venture capitalists that are investing in this DSOs and going around and buying up practices from, from older guys say like would have bought out my dad um, instead of me buying them out. And then they have that same, same kind of program where, okay, now they're, they have 48 offices and they can go to the insurance companies and say, Hey, we've got 48 offices. You're going to reimburse us better, but we're going to pay the doctors that work for us less than they would make, make on their own. So it's this weird combination of you got this big money that is, is owning the practice and siphoning profits off the top. Then you have young dentists that they're hiring at decent wages uh, and they'll give them signing bonuses just to, you know, drag them in there. But those kids have, you know, their, their monthly um, uh, student loan payment might be two or $3,000. So boom, there you go. That's it. And, and those guys, they're renting. They're, they're not, owning their practice, building equity that they can then sell later on like you, you would own a house. And so you don't get what your, your friend was talking about at the VA. You don't get that you know, walk in the door, we're just going to do what's right for you. You walk in the door, we're going to do what's right for me and right. get my family fed. And it's, it's a bit it, dentistry because we're kind of a cottage industry and we haven't been rolled into the, the health insurance thing. We've been fighting it for years. And um, w there are some you know, antitrust lawsuits that go on around the country, um, specifically that we're restraining trade, um, things like whitening and, and the, now the, the, um, the Invisalign competitors like Smile Direct Club and Clear Correct and these kind of things. Um, they're, they're filing lawsuits against certain state boards of dentistry saying, well, you're restricting trade in our, our state. And, and so dentists are, are on the other side saying, well, actually, we have these big corporate interests that are trying to screw over the public, and we're the defenders of the public right now. Um, and so it's, it's this weird spot that dentistry's in right now that over the next generation, it's gonna, you're going to see a big switch. And, and dentistry is fixing to get very expensive over the next, say, 15 to 20 years, unless we stem the tide back into the, you know, the sole proprietor, the owner-operated kind of practice, because those guys, like me, only answer to themselves, and, and we can kind of manage things much better than when we have a quota. There's, you know, literally dentists with quotas, and it's like, you, you got to use car salesman with a quota. Do you want your dentist to be a used car salesman? Not, no way, in yeah. any way, shape, or form. So do you think this falls victim to capitalism in a way? Uh, you know, and I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but it appears like where the major, where you said that major corporations are coming in. And for me, I, I this is usually one of my complaints 
uh, with capitalism is the fact that it leaves morals out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't see things with a, a good moral compass. Uh, and some people will argue there might be somebody out there that wants to school me on it. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> but to me, it just seems like in situations like this and situations where the insurance companies uh, and the hospitals and doctor's offices and things are in cahoots, you know, where they have said, you know, we can set the price at this. You can charge this much. And it doesn't matter if that patient doesn't pay that overdue balance because you're still going to make the money from us. And you're just hoping that some of those patients will pay this and you make more money, you know? So it seems like that might be the case here where you're paying your dentist less. So you're going to get, unfortunately, we know that people will work to what they make. Unfortunately, not everybody's in it with this grand sense of this is what I was born to do. You know, they make 90 grand. They're going to give you a $90,000 dentist work. You know, if they're making $150,000, they're going to give you $150,000 work. They're going to work to their payment. So you think this is a detriment to this? Um, a little, I got two, two thoughts on that. Um, one, you're talking to a dentist that works in the state of Kentucky. Yeah, that's which true. Yeah. <laughs> there's an unlimited market in the state of Kentucky. Um, Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, we are consistently the bottom four states in uh, quality of oral health. Um, the, depending on what metric, um, Kentucky is famous because we have the, uh, the most people over 65 with no teeth, the totally edentulous teeth, people wearing dentures. We have more denture wearers in Kentucky than anywhere else in the country. There's other states like West Virginia that have more cavities and, you know, there's, you know, there's other metrics. So when you talk about capitalism and, you know, the market driven economics, like we've got a huge market here, but then again, we don't have the expendable income to really capitalize on that. You go to South Florida, you go to the West coast, you go to the Northeast, you go to those places and uh, you can charge whatever you want because people have obnoxious amounts of money to spend on, on stuff of that sort. Um, But I do believe that, that what I do is, is, is true capitalism is that I, you know, I, I find somebody that has a need. I can fill that need. They pay me for the service to fill that need. Um, and, and when I'm working with somebody face to face and, and, you know, they're, I'm answering to them, I work for them. That's, that's the way I see it. When I have a patient comes in and say, Hey man, I, you know, I, I, I love doing this for you. Now, if I'm working, like I said, in a, in a DSO or, or some of the, one of those big groups, I'm working for the owners, um, or the investors, which is not, yeah, that's not, it, it is a big detriment to the patient care. And, and we, we see it, you can see it here in town. There's a, a group that has expanded exponentially over the last 20 years. Um, and they, you know, have their, their advertising budgets through the roof. Um, and I see second opinions from there nonstop um, that, oh, this dentist, I didn't, I didn't have any problem. They told me I had 13 cavities and, you know, they did four of them and then it started hurting and they couldn't fix that. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you needed that in the first place. There was probably three or four things that you needed. Um, but for them to tell you, you need the 13, well, that's because that, that doc is, you know, is like I said, not working for you. He's working for somebody else. And, and that's where I said that, you know, the, the true capitalism is, is, you know, you're, whoever you're, you're talking to is who you're doing business with. And, and that's a dwindling, um, I guess, population in the, in the dental world, which is a, a tough spot to watch it happen. Um, the other, other side is, um, it, it, just the, the demographics. Um, 
through the early 80s and 90s, people weren't going to dental school. They're, the numbers, uh, my, my associate, she graduated U of L Dental School in 1994 with about 50, 50 students in her class. Um, currently, the U of L will graduate 120 students per year. So you can see there, there was multiple years, like an entire decade, that the state just was not producing dentists. So we have kind of this inverted pyramid um, population that there are, and, and then the other side of it was talking about economics with the stock market crash of 08, there was a lot of dentists that would have retired at 60 that are now retiring at 70 because they needed that extra 10 years to build back up their retirement because there's no pensions in dentistry. It's what you, you know, you, you eat what you kill. And if you, you know, if we have a drought like we did with the stock market for what, six or seven years, then you had to keep killing more meat to eat. Um, so that's where I'm saying that it's been an opportunity for these big investors to come in and buy up all these older guys' practice because there's their golden parachute is somebody paying them, you know, whatever, 125% of the value of their practice. And, and okay, that's, that's making up for, you know, the lost time they lost in, the, in their retirement. And, and then there's the young now, now since uh, the, the, I guess the last, you know, five or six years, um, more den more students are graduating from college saying, I can't get a job with just an undergrad degree. I need a graduate degree. Okay. Uh, I can't get into med school. I don't want to be a lawyer. I don't want to do business. I'll go to dental school. Um, dentistry and pharmacy have seen huge explosions in their students over the last decade. And so now you've got a ton of young people. So I'm kind of right in the middle. I'm, I'm about to turn 40 this year. And, and my age group is sort of the, the, the tip of that, that next iceberg that's coming in because the, the years and years after me, each class gets bigger and bigger, but the guys and ladies older than me, there's fewer and fewer of them. So, uh, we've got this dynamic where the, the dentists are at, at the, you know, the will of the money and they're not making the decisions anymore. So is it a detriment to the, to the industry? Absolutely. And, and is there an easy solution to it? No way. Other than Medicare for all or some kind of socialized medicine, which would then, but then you go back to, okay, well, what are you going to pay a dentist? You know, you're going to pay him a hundred thousand dollars. You're going to get, that's all your, that's all the work you're getting. Are you going to pay him $200,000? Well, okay. Now you're going to get a lot of people wanting to do the job, but is it, you know, can the government pay that? And, and that's a real big hole that uh, I donate to the ADA's uh, political action committee and, and they try to, you know, get us involved like with, you know, with the, all these new care act and the heels act and all that kind of stuff. But I really don't know where it's going. Um, I think America is at the precipice of a big time switch. Um, you see it with just, you know, the universal basic income, um, you know, those kind of concepts, you know, college for all, that's going to revolutionize the way all medicine is practiced. Because when you start dumping, if, if we do get to a UBI program, uh, you start dumping a thousand dollars into somebody's pocket every month. Boy, uh, consumerism is going to shoot through the roof. Not that we're not already a very uh, superficial society and materialistic, but you start giving them extra money on top of what they're earning. Like, wow, okay, so am I going to start doing Invisalign nonstop? Am I going to be doing veneers all day long? Because people have, just with the, the CARES Act or the, the stimulus checks, I've done more Invisalign in the last month than I did the first six months of the year. Because yeah. people are like, I got, I got cash. And, and right. some of them are unemployed paying me because they get, there's $1,200 a month or a week or every two weeks that, that's just free money for them. Um, so there's a lot of things going on politically 
um, aside from economically that are, are going to definitely change the way dentistry is, is done over the next decade. And so. yeah, I think a lot of what you said there, you can see the parallels, um, you know, speaking from a firsthand account of education. Um, I think we get what we pay for. Uh, there's a lot yeah. of really experienced um Individuals that step away from education because $42,000 starting pay isn't really, um, that's not real tantalizing. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, appealing. yeah. The work and, that you have to do to earn it. Exactly. Uh, and until recently, you know, we had to have a, a master's degree, uh, which did change under Bevan, which I think will present uh, its own unique problems in the future. You can bet your money or bet your ass that they're going to start freezing pay uh, there, you know, that's going to lead to all sorts of things, uh, I think, but I think that we could draw more, um, unique professionals to the field of education who would have more firsthand experience, like actual engineers, uh, actual chemists and things of that nature. If you were willing to pay for their experience. Uh, now we do get that to some degree, but our caps, uh, a doctorate in education, if you stay in the classroom, you're not going to make more than $90,000 with a doctorate and that's 20 years in a classroom. Uh, I think the most that an educator makes, uh, one of my coworkers, she's been in the field of education 23 years and she's going to top out at 82 grand and she has as much education as you can get before a doctorate. It's called a rank one. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of money in education. She probably, you know, would have $200,000 in debt and after 20 years only making that much money. That's shit. Um, so people and, you need. Know, that's where when they talk about defunding the police, it, it's maybe not defund the police, defund the military, maybe because do we? Yeah. I'm looking at this Heels Act yeah. um, that that has been proposed by Mitch McConnell, and uh, mixed in there, 1.5 billion for a new FBI headquarters. How about we give that 1.5 billion to school counselors, well, teachers, but how about counselors? Uh, get them in every school. Maybe we won't need police officers to protect against shootings if we had kids that uh, you know wake up in the morning to an empty house because mom's worked all night or dad you know dad's gone maybe they come in and they can get somebody to help them and and give and I'll tell you that's that's the one thing that I grew up in in Louisville's East End I went to private schools I went to to Vanderbilt University which is the epitome of private school um, and then I started working in the South End um, which is I call it a recession proof neighborhood because it's generally just sort of always in a recession. Um, at, uh, the median income of our zip code where my office is, is 35,000 a year. Um, and when I first got out of school, I worked uh, a lot of Medicaid children and I'd talk to them and, and hear their stories about their, you know, where their parents are and, and whatnot. And I realized, man, like I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I was a white male to two college educated, married parents. Like I, I started out on third base. Like if I didn't score, that was my, that was all on me. And man, I can't tell you how many of my classmates, especially at St. X that like, yeah, you start, maybe not started out on third base, but you started out on second base and you never got to third. What did you do with yourself? And, it, and, and, but then I see other kids that they didn't even let them in the, on the field. And, and they're still, you know, they're still kicking around in the woods trying to find their way just to get on the playing field. And, and those are the kids that you've got to teach. And those are the kids that, well, JCPS, what is it, 60 or 70% of kids qualify for free and reduced lunch? Yeah. Um, 
it is an unwieldy amount of work just to get them to the, the median level, much less to excel and to improve their, their well-being. And that's why you, when you hear the ideas of defund the police, well, this is just really bad messaging there. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. we don't want that. Bill Maher and John Oliver both slammed them for that. They're like, leave it to the Democratic Party to uh, so awfully tagline something. Uh, and it's the same it's the same problems that you you fall into with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. And I don't know that anybody is going to. Well, any decent human is going to argue that any life matters. Um, but it, it's it creates this this dichotomy of division. You know, it's uh, you say, well, they're over there and, you know, maybe I'm worried about me Uh, and the defund the police. Like I didn't get it at first when I saw I went to some of the the protests and whatnot. Uh, The teachers, we organized a protest. Our students met up with us. It was a beautiful day. It really was. Uh, There was uh, 3000 of our recent graduates that marched down into Jefferson Square Park with us. Uh, and wow. met with us. There was probably, I don't know, anywhere from five to 8,000 people. It was beautiful. Um, but when you say defund the police and I see these signs and I was asking people, I was like, why do you have that sign? Do you think uh, the starting pay for an LMPD officer, I have two people that went through the police academy, starting pays 35 grand. Right. What? For people that can easily get killed, uh, can deal with any number of things. You know, it's a dangerous job. Anybody that wants to argue that is full of shit. You're, you're kidding yourself. Uh, it is a difficult job. And we've also created this, you know, through fault of their own, through uh, years of oppression in different communities and things of that nature. There's not a real high opinion of them. So you're going into a job that you know that you're going to be hated by a good portion of the population. Um, so my, my thought was that, but then when you look into it, you go, okay. So, you know, for people that don't know when they say defund the police, they want to move funds. It's not that they want to pay police officers less because realistically they should pay them more, but they want to say, we shouldn't have police officers as this catch all for everything. This person maybe seems a little mentally unstable. So this police officer should show up on scene like they are a medical uh, mental health mil- mental health care professional. They are not, uh, so they're not going to know how to handle. That's how you end up in situations where somebody is acting erratic, and then they end up in a situation where they get tased or something unfortunate happens. Because we are asking way too much of police officers. That, I've heard that that the ar- argument to that. So when you have a crazy person on the street with a gun or a knife. You want a social worker to show up, right? No, no, I don't. Obviously, not because social workers. And my wife was a social worker before she started working. Well, before we had kids and started working with me, Um, that that's the crappiest job in the country. And the most, oh my gosh, they accrued PTO faster than any job I've ever seen because of the emotional and mental stress that's Uh, put on those people. Yeah, and 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 yeah, if you could then maybe give some of the training that those people have to our police, or maybe, maybe you do hire a, you know, a social worker to work with the police, you know, and, and that when we have one of those situations, they work in concert with each other. Maybe both of them show up. Like when, when you have an accident, you have fire EMS and police show up. Well, why can't we just have a better funded social work program that can show up and say, okay, we know what this guy's doing. He's got, he's on a drug you know binge right now and we're going to, you know, this way or that and whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you're right that the, 
the police aren't overpaid. We know that for sure. No. Um, yeah. But I believe they are, yeah, I agree with you. They're tasked with way more than they really need to be doing right now and, right. and have for maybe like the last 30 or 40 years. Right. Um, and, and that's, that goes to another, another topic that is, I want to say near and dear to me, but something that I see a lot is, is the drug epidemic. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was, that a, probably impacts you in a major way in the dentist industry, uh, and the dental industry rather, because so many of those drugs do lead to poor quality of health in the, in the mouth, meth yeah, mouth um, and all that stuff. So people used to ask me like, do you see meth mouth mouth a lot? And I can't definitively tell you that I've ever seen meth mouth. Um, the surgeons that pull teeth like regularly that they, they do, um, when they did. And, but, um, what I, what I saw for a long time was the doctor shoppers looking for pills. And, mm. um, you know, here in Kentucky, we, the, op- the opioid crisis was worse. You know, Kentucky, uh, southeastern Ohio and West Virginia were the epicenter of the opioid crisis. And um, Kentucky uh, was actually a leader in, in getting a national network to track prescriptions. Um, we were one of the first, we had this program called Casper, the Kentucky all schedule uh, prescription reporting program. Um, when that was, and I, that was in effect in 2007 when I got out of school. Um, and, but it was a very convoluted process of, uh, you had to send a fax and you know, all this kind of stuff or whatever. Um, and that, then they upgraded it to a, a completely online. But what uh, we found is 80% of states didn't even have a program like that. And none of the states were interconnected. So you could, if you lived on one of these border states, you could go into Kentucky and get, you know, 12 prescriptions from 12 different doctors. And, and there was no requirement to even um, track that for, for doctors to check it. Um, so what Kentucky did was, first of all, moved that from the Cabinet for Health and Family Services to the um, Attorney General's office. So that the, and, and, but both of them had their, their fingers on it. So you'd have the, the medical boards and the, the health departments with that data. You'd also allow, if you had probable cause, the, the, the law enforcement to intervene and say, okay, we arrested this guy. He's got you know, a, a, a couple of pills. Let's check his Casper report. Because previous to that, it was HIPAA protected infor- information. So it was medical information that, you, that they could not use in a court of law without you know, violating that, that statute. So Kentucky was revolutionary in saying, okay, we are going to give the, the, the law enforcement the rights to look at this data, and we're going to require doctors, if they're prescribing over a certain amount, that they must check the patient's CASPER report to see if you know, some, they've been doctor shopping and, and that kind of stuff. And then they took that and, and sold that to other places, specifically Florida. Florida, what, it was this it was pipeline. Uh, people would get on buses in eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee and West Virginia and go straight down to Jacksonville, Florida, Orlando, where they could doctor shop. And literally chiropractors would say, you could take down anybody's spine x-ray. And say, oh, yep, you've got a dis- displacement and... Yep, you're gonna get you know a uh, prescription for 300 uh, uh, oxycotton's, and you get six refills on that, and you owe us 900 dollars right now. And sure enough, those people would do that, and then they go back to Kentucky with their 2,000 pills and sell those at 10 dollars a pop and make 20 grand on a 900 dollars charge. And and yeah. that's how that's all why the they pills call 
I think the 65, the uh, Interstate 65 is called the drug pipeline, I believe, of the of uh, the yeah. this entire half of the country. I think maybe 75. Maybe it was 65, but it 75 that goes through Atlanta and into into, you know, into eastern Florida was was really bad because it was that 75 corridor through Kentucky all the way. Anything. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. East, yeah. You know, east of Lexington. That's where it was really bad. And it'll go um, all the way to Michigan. You know, you can take it to 65. Yeah, right. right, yeah, right yeah. Up to Michigan. And it it's just problematic. And then that goes to another podcast. Uh, I don't know if you've listened to Bardstown. Um, no, I haven't. But I, I've read a lot about that situation. Yeah, so for individuals that aren't familiar, uh, free plug for that podcast. Uh, Bartown, Kentucky had um, some cops like executed in what felt like a, I don't know, they were corralled into a dark road and like picked off like execution style. Just insane. Uh, there's so much to do with it. And people think that it is directly tied to the drug trade and things coming up through that because Bartown's right on that line. Well, there's uh, a federal, there's a federal, uh, case against i believe it was a a sheriff in bardstown who was being paid directly by a cartel out of san diego that was owned by a mexican cartel that they were using that that entity to bring drugs right in there and then spread them all across the midwest got it yeah. it's just so crazy uh, that that was something you, you lead into the drug the drug issue wasn't something again that's something I wouldn't have considered, you know, you being well, in the heart of the industry, I just, you know, now here's, here's what I'll tell you is, is with that, that requirement to check the Casper reports, um, you can immediately see, okay, this patient has seen three other doctors and they, they told me that they, they, you know, they don't have any pain pills at home, but look, I, I know you were prescribed 90 Oxycontin, um, 30 days ago. So, you know, just because you ran out of, of your, your other prescription doesn't mean it's time to show up um, at an office. Now, the one thing that killed me for the first half of my career uh, was the calls that came in on December 23rd or July 2nd or, you know, right before a holiday weekend. Oh, doc, my tooth's hurting so bad. I know I haven't been there in like two years, but can you call me something in? Um, on my answering machine message now, we say, if you have not been seen by our office in the last two weeks, you will not be prescribed medicate, uh, controlled or uh, scheduled narcotics. Um, and sure enough, those calls stopped happening. Um, when we were upfront about it and said, Hey, you know, it will prescribe you antibiotics. We'll prescribe you, you know, you know, other things, but uh, narcotics are not being prescribed by our office unless we've seen you in the last two weeks. And I do feel like a hard ass sometimes on that. Um, cause I'm like, I'm, you're not partying on my watch. You know, I know, I know how this goes. Um, and I definitely don't want to be contributing to a problem much less like, you know, being part of a, a drug trade. Cause yeah, I, I prescribe you this stuff and I know, I know how much, I mean, I don't buy them, but they, the, the law enforcement, I've been educated. They tell us, uh, you know, these, these pills, they're worth money. They're 30, 20, $30 a, a pop. And okay, shoot! I just gave you a prescription that you're going to get paid for by Medicare for free, and then there's that's a thousand dollars in your pocket right there. Like that just seems pretty, you know, pretty against what I got into dentistry for. Um, and I'll tell you, I never thought that was going to be something, but that hit right as I was a young dentist. And um, I feel like I was very glad to be part of the group that was very proactive and helping shut it down. Now that led to the heroin crisis because when the doctors stopped prescribing uh, opioids, you know, there, here comes the, the opioid of them all is heroin. Um, and that's much worse um, because 
there are you know unscrupulous dealers that know. And I, I, just, I just talked to a, a patient the other day who was telling me about his buddy down in, or his, his sister, uh, his, he was telling me about his buddy in Glasgow, Kentucky. That's right in the central Kentucky, halfway between Louisville and Nashville. Um, and he was telling me how his sister had lived down there and his sister overdosed about two years ago. And he's like, yeah, I wasn't really close to her. Like after high school, she kind of like went off on her own. And uh, she uh, apparently, there was like six people that died in, in a week from the same dealer that was pressing fentanyl into pills that looked like um, hydrocodone and fentanyl is about a hundred times stronger. And so these people were, you know, and the idea by the drug dealer is, Oh, I'm going to give people a high that they're never going to, you know, want to go anywhere else. They're going to come back. Well, he he goes and kills six people, um, which I believe that that dealer was arrested and, you know, charged with manslaughter and and whatnot, but that doesn't bring those people back to life. Um, And, and, it's a, it's a real, I don't know. It, I am, uh, I, I'm a pretty liberal dentist, um, dentistry as a whole, because most dentists make good money, become very conservative and Republican leaning. And I, I'm definitely not on that, that wavelength. Um, and I, I wouldn't say I'm a libertarian because I really think the libertarians get a little nuts. So in their, their ideology, but I'm kind of somewhere between that liberal libertarian idea and, and the, personal responsibility of drug users needs to be taken into effect that life is a series of choices and you go down that road you're going you you know you need to know when to get off that train that's two bad analogies but um but the you know the 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 drug addiction is a sickness that that can be treated like that um but it goes back to the defunding the police and i believe personally the biggest problem with policing in america is the war on drugs yeah Um, what has been going on for eternity since prohibition in in the twenties? The market for illicit substances is not going away across no. the planet. And when we have artificially tried to limit that, you know, and and when you go back to it to the to the Nixon era, is it is it politically driven? Um, you know, the the stories I've heard is it was for him. Yeah. A lot of it because of the the riots in '68. And then, uh, you know, he wanted to make pot smoking look like, you know, the hippies and whatnot. Oh, only hippies smoke. We're going to make that you know, illegal. Oh, only, uh, only black people do cocaine. We're going to make that illegal. So boom, we've just demonized my two big political opponents. And it's been going on. You know, I grew up in, in the D.A.R.E. generation, which Same. that was the most hilarious folly of all. Here, <laughs> let's teach a bunch of third and fourth grade suburban white kids about drugs. Let's show them what all the drugs are. Because, like I said, I grew up in the east end of Louisville, the most lily white part of the one of the, the whole country. Like, I had, I was never going to see crack. I was never going to see heroin. Not until I got plenty old enough. But sure enough, I was watching cartoon videos of "Don't do heroin, Tommy." Like, get, <laughs> get out of here. Obviously, we're not, you know, we're not doing that. But it, it introduced a whole generation. And then guess what? My generation grew up to be the rave culture. Mm. That, that, that late 90s, early 2000s rave culture where Molly took over, you know, the, the, I, I saw too many kids getting, get into that in college and they, be, you know, the MDMA, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, that took over those kids and, and maybe because they were desensitized because it was a cartoon drugs, doing drugs is a cartoon. It's like Superman. It's like, he man, nope, it's, it's a real big mess and yeah, and you get yourself into it. And that's what I was saying. There's got to be some personal responsibility there, but it's also 
you know, I, I don't have the solutions, but it's I do indicative, know that, that it's indicative of a culture that's allowed it to happen. And it yeah. goes back to that defunding the police thing where we should stop treating drug addicts like criminals because they're not really criminals. There's somebody who's until they do criminal activity. I totally get that. I'm with you for personal responsibility. You steal somebody's stuff to go get drugs. Yeah, you, you, you need to pay for that. But if you're just struggling and you see so many this panhandling here in our city, once they changed that legislation a few years back uh, and allowed it to be more uh, predominant, you know, saying that panhandlers basically have free reign to go where they want. Uh, so many of those people are drug addicts, you know, and you can see them. You can see it in their behavior. They're uh, finicky. They're super touchy. They, you know, they're touching their face and they're they're pacing back and forth. And you see it's that itch. And it's it's an epidemic right now, you know, and we're seeing so many people that are suffering from it. And does that person need to be in jail or do they need help? They probably don't need to be in jail. They're not necessarily a criminal because the only person they're hurting is themselves in most cases. Uh, and that sucks because, you know, I've been affected by it. You know, my uh, brother-in-law has been plagued by it. He's been in and out of jail his whole life because he's, you know, really he needs mental health help. Uh, because, you know, he's bipolar, he's got uh, just a litany of issues and uh, it, it sucks. It sucks that, that that's a thing. Do I do I have an answer? That's that's the other thing that sucks. Uh, this is all extraordinarily complicated, especially when you're talking about 300 plus million people and how to make this something that is um, something that can be controlled and something that can be consistent. Um, but I think that there's, you know we have the numbers to say that there's millions of people that are nonviolent of offenders in jail sim yep. simply for drug possession charges or things of that nature. And that's somebody's dad in a lot of cases, that's somebody's son. That's a, what, yeah. what problems are you creating in our country by doing that? Well, and, and that goes to another point is uh, the conservatives want to harp on, you know, family values and, and Oh, the destruction of the family core. And then they also want to say, you know, well, the, the racist side of it is, oh, all black people are thieves and whatever. Well, because of the war on drugs, you've got, what is it, about one in six, one in eight adult black males that's just disappeared from their, um, their neighborhoods. They're yeah. either in jail or dead. Right. And then you're saying now, okay, well, these, yeah. And then it was the, the Ronald Reagan welfare queen quote that that still, that mentality is still ingrained in a ton of America. Um, and, and that I'll tell you though, I feel like this coronavirus situation is changing people's mind because what is it? 30 million Americans are receiving unemployment benefits. Right. Boom. And if you're not calling that welfare, then you're not calling it like it is. That is welfare. That's right. A hundred percent social safety net welfare system. And so now we've got 10% of America that's directly being, well, and then you say their whole family. So yeah, you're talking 15, 20% of America that is benefiting from welfare. So when you start looking at these welfare, and, and how many, I can't tell you how many other dental offices have told me my employees don't want to come back to work. They're making more money on unemployment than they are for me working for them. And it's like, these are the same, that's the same demographic of people that was, you know, demonizing the, 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 you know, the single mom that's raising two or three kids, but you don't, you know, okay, well, she shouldn't be getting pregnant. She shouldn't have out of marital sex and whatever. Okay. <laughs> that's your, that's your conservative family value. But then 
support that child that is growing up in that house and, and get them into school, get them the medical and dental care for that matter, that will, will help them not have to struggle to learn. Because that's going back to my, my dental world. Um, the biggest, other than obesity, the biggest epidemic in childhood um, in America is dental decay. Absolutely. And when you have children that grow up in um, non-food secure areas, that they're drinking soft drinks at a young age, which is the worst thing that could be going on, and not you're you're eating low, you know, quality food, high high, you know, calorie, sugary intake food. Um, when a kid has an abscess in his tooth and is having to go to school like that for weeks, they're not focusing on math. They're worried about, well, I'm hungry, first of all. Um, I'm not sitting here because this teacher doesn't know who I am and and my my face hurts. And so they fall behind, you know, they're they're not they're playing catch up all the way through. Because these these kids, it's it hits them, you know, first, second, third grade. Um, if they don't stay on track by the time they get to fourth or fifth grade, you know, they're reading at a first grade level. How are you supposed to catch them up? How are they supposed to get themselves to college or even to trade school? Those are the kids that are dropping out and selling drugs and the whole cycle happens all over again. And that's an extremely accurate point. I can tell you, having grown up really poor, uh, we didn't go to, we went to the clinic. We went down to Portland, uh, the Portland clinic that had a uh, dentistry uh, facility there. And there's still, there's still a really good program down there. Yeah. And uh, I won't, I won't crap on them. Um, but yeah, I dealt with tooth pain quite a bit and, you know, because my parents couldn't afford it. And a lot of times they couldn't afford to take off to take me, Yeah, you know, cause mm-hmm. I'm a third grader. My mom's not going to put me on a bus. I would have had to take three buses to get down to Portland dentistry. Um, so she's not going to stick me on that route by myself, you know, and expect me to have all the information that I need to provide to them when I get down there to have the work. So that meant she had to take off work. And that's another thing, you know, in our culture, you know, we like to think that we're so forward and all that thing. And we want to crap on child labor and things of that nature elsewhere. Might want to take a look here at home and I, I don't get it twisted. I'm allowed to criticize America and still love America. Okay. Yeah, right. right. Uh, I do love this country. I absolutely do. I love the people and I wouldn't, I would rather be nowhere else, but I think that it's problematic that we have our people working themselves to death. Uh, you know, my mom, that's a great point. Yeah. My mom was working 60 hours a week. My dad was working 50 hours a week and we were still on welfare. It it was none of this bullshit. My mom was not a damn welfare queen. Yeah. She had four kids, but my parents worked always, always. And it was still hard. It was still tough for them to raise their children. And my dad had a college degree, you know? So it's like he went to college while he was raising two boys and working two jobs damn Superman. I don't know how the hell he did it and still didn't make enough, you know, because he had student debt, you know? So it was like this catch 22. He went to, you know, better himself, but then was burdened with uh, college debt. He died with, he was 59 and still died with college debt, you know? And it's like, (laughs) it's all cyclical, you know, how do we help uh, people? I think you made that side statement. You said, don't get me wrong. I love America. I love the people. And that, I think that gets to the root of the problem maybe is that as a people, I think we are all still very 
good. And that, that, that Americans as a whole, and, and I, I fight with my mom a lot about this because she's a, a Fox News, you know, whatever, disciple. And I argue with her, oh, well, the other day she dropped the line. This is just an aside. Well, if China would just take responsibility for their role, I'm like, what do you want them to do? Well, they could just relieve our debt. I'm like, okay, you're, you're getting into like <laughs> giant economic you know, whatever. But anyway, would we do that? Would we say, all right, China, you get a pass. No fucking exactly. way. Right. We're not right. doing that ever. But what I was getting at is, is my, my, my parents have done well. My dad did great in his career and, and, and they give away a lot of money. They've donated to, you know, big causes, little causes throughout the years. And she makes that point that like, well, I do this. And I'm like, I understand that. And I understand that, um, that a lot of rich people give away a lot of money. You know, they're, for every Jeff Bezos, there's a Bill Gates, you know, and, and so for the people that are just raking in money and then Mark Zuckerberg's, they, you know, they're worth, you know, 50, 80, hundred billion dollars and they're giving away a billion. Oh, great. That's, that's nice. And, and that there are a lot of, you know, the Southeast Christian church in Louisville, we have this mega church with 20, 20 something thousand. They have a sanctuary for almost 10,000. It's the third biggest arena in the state of Kentucky. You look at that place and you're like, oh my gosh, these Christians, are, are they just glorifying God? Are they glorifying themselves? Are they actually outreaching to help people? And, and generally, yes, they do. If you really look at them, they do. But the scale that even small grassroots organizations like big churches or things of that sort cannot support the other half, the, the, that poverty line level group of Americans because that's close to 30% of America's in near the poverty line or under the poverty line. So we need structural changes to help support those people to get them to the middle class. And when it, when I look at you know economics and society, it really is that donor class, those billionaires that buy and sell politicians and Mitch McConnell here we live he lives less than 5 miles from my house. I I, I could drive, I could ride my bike to his house and throw throw rotten eggs at it. But then I'd probably get arrested for federal charges or yeah. just like our anyhow. But uh, that's where we need big structural changes that, yeah. And, and until we see something change at that level, um, they're going to keep us fighting amongst each other. And, mm. and, and I, I'll tell you, like, it's where I, where I am in my practice, I see a lot of the working poor. Um, when we, uh, when, when Obamacare kicked in and the expansion um, allowed working people to qualify for, for Medicare, Oh my gosh, we could not keep up with the, with the flood of new patients. All these people, all the people, the, the painters, the baristas, the hairdressers, all these people that, that worked, like you're saying, like your parents worked multiple jobs sometimes. No, nobody supplied with health insurance because they had three part-time jobs. Okay, well, here comes the government. And, and guess what? Those people were actually some of my favorite patients. Some of the Medicaid patients I had seen previous were deadbeats. They were, yeah, maybe they weren't the welfare queens, but they, they, they had issues and this and that, but when we got the people that were employed, they'd come in and they'd get what they got for free and they'd loved it. And then I'd say, you know, I, I, you're missing this tooth. Would you like to get it fixed and replaced? And yeah. Okay. So they got the best of both worlds. They were getting a lot for free, but then they also had some expendable income to catch themselves up. And that's, that was the great catch up. Those were, that was where we were saying those kids that fell behind as, as children, like, eliminating medical costs for them in their twenties and, and early thirties, let a lot of them catch up And it. We made a big difference for, and then governor Matt Bevin came in, you know, and just slashed it. And, um, 
knocked half a million people off the roll here in Kentucky. And um, is, we're still kind of recovering from it. Um, so it's, it's things like that. Like I'm saying, when you have something like Obamacare comes in, and Obamacare, for what it was, was decent. I won't say it was good. And so there was a lot of the medical professionals. It was a starting point. It was a starting point. point. Yeah. And, but the problem with Obamacare was he he bent too far to the conservatives and, and to the insurance companies and to the investment bankers. Yeah. And that was, as much as I like Obama for what he did kind of socially and emotionally for America, he was owned by Wall Street. And, mm-hmm. and bailed out Wall Street, bailed out the, you know, then again, kind of had to, or else the entire economy would have crashed in 2008, 2009, um, but then didn't require them to change their business practices after they paid us back. Right. And it's those kind of things that you listen to the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world. That's what they want. Uh, I don't know what Joe, Joe Biden, he was asked the other day, are you running against Donald Trump or are you running for Joe Biden? And his answer was, I'm running because Donald Trump is president. Like facepalm, like buddy, come on. You got to come with something better. You, you want to lose an election. That's how you say it. You go against the least yeah. popular president in the last hundred years. And you can't even say what you're for. You just say I'm against him. Right. And, and that's where I think that we're, you know, we're missing the point. And, and I don't know if it was the, the, the democratic elite, the, the donors that didn't want to throw Bernie Sanders out there because he would end up hurting them uh, but I, I truly do believe that, that that blue wave is coming. Is it one? Is it the next election? Is it two or three down the road? It's going to have to because we have so many young people in America that are so deep in it. They need the structural help to get out of it. And, and that's why like, I look at my, my dental career they don't and vote. I know that the back half of it is going to be completely different from the first half. Yeah, but the problem is they don't vote. Yeah, right. You know, and that's what Charles Booker was saying uh, on a local election bit here for people outside of Louisville uh, or outside of Kentucky, rather. Uh, Charles Booker was running against Amy McGrath. And I didn't really, I personally didn't know anybody that supported her. And I'm not going to crap well, on her. Break down Amy McGrath is not a Kentuckian. She yeah. moved to Kentucky after her Air Force career. Exactly. And was handpicked by the Washington Chuck Schumers um, to be the candidate to go up against Mitch McConnell because she has a military background and she's also made statements, uh, you know, that sort of support some of Trump's policies and, and, and which is okay. I'm not going to shit on that because as a politician, you, this, this, uh, drawing a line in the sand and saying, I can't believe in anything that party says, that's why we have the problems we have right now. Because realistically, and as these conversations uh, that I have here on the podcast show, most of us are somewhere here in the middle. You know, we believe some of that. We believe some of this. A dibble and dabble on both ends of the spectrum. Not the the extremist leftists do not represent the majority of the population. And the extreme right does not represent the majority of the population. Those are extremists. Uh, and I don't like either of them, realistically. Uh, I think that all you're doing is is creating a divide in this country that we don't need. Uh, but Charles Booker said that he went to one of the protests uh, for the Black Lives Matter protest here in Louisville, and he lives down um, off Ninth Street. So the dude walks the walk like he's not full of shit, like he came from the things that he's trying to represent. And I didn't understand how people couldn't get behind that. And he lost by a pretty narrow margin. You know, if people had showed up, he could have won. And I think he could have beat Mitch McConnell in November if people would show up. 
But he said that very thing. He's like, you guys are here protesting, right? He's like, you guys are willing to do this, but you got to show up. He's like, we, especially in the black community, he had said this. He's like, we have one of the lowest percentages of turnouts. He's like 22% of registered black voters show up to vote. He's like, that's below the national average, which is like something still abysmal, which is like, I don't know, 60%. 60% of registered voters, I think, uh, nationally actually turn up to vote. And the majority of those people are old white people. So what do you think is going to happen? We're going to get more of the same unless you guys take an active role. And I know this is turning into a damn PSA, but I can't help it, man. You guys got to show up. It's very much to what you're talking about. If we want things to change in the way that we do, uh, and I think a majority of the population, and I'm not going to speak on all things because some conservative things uh, will stick around because those values are ingrained in our uh, country from the get go. Um, but I think some things will change and they will have to change. Uh, things like you had already mentioned, universal basic, uh, basic income, because automation is coming, folks. Uh, these corporations and things of that nature, if they can get a machine to do the job that you can, because that machine will never be sick, they don't need to give it health care. Why would they not do that? You already have kiosks and McDonald's, you already have machines. I worked making whiskey barrels. Uh, for 10 years, and they cut the uh, facility, the number of people that worked in that facility by half because they had machines that can not only do that job that you can do, but do it much better. I mean, it made a fucking perfect barrel. It was They've insane. been talking about that for, for 20 something, 25, 30 years. Uh, the city of Louisville has suffered immensely. We don't get credit for being part of the Rust Belt, but we really are. Mm. Louisville is more akin to the Toledo, Ohio, Flint, Michigan, you know, all those North uh, Midwest towns that has saw all their manufacturing leave. Louisville's biggest sector for the middle part of the 20th century was manufacturing. We mm -hmm. still have a Ford plant. We still have a, 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 a Petrolux or whatever GE is now. Oh, yeah. um, but places like Nashville and Charlotte and Atlanta and Birmingham, um, have revolutionized their economies by moving to technology and and service industries, healthcare um, and te tech. And, and Louisville never did it because we lived high on our horse. Those Ford employees that all the way through the 80s that they could make $25, $30 an hour, retire after 20 years, man, and then go work another job. Those guys did well. You, the, that's the old, uh, what, what is it? Um, the boomer, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. You could, you could, Get out of high school. By the time you're you're you know 40, 40 years old, you're retired after you made you know eighty thousand dollars a year, and then you get a pension, and that was that was great life. You go buy yourself a house, have three kids and and two cars and all that, and then all that started going away in the eighties. And by the nineties, Louisville's economy, Louisville is is one of these stagnant towns that just is not growing, it's not shrinking. You know, there's some good stuff going on here, but for the most part. Every one of our pure cities has passed us by Columbus, Ohio, Austin, Texas, all these places, Nashville and Louisville in, in say about 1990, we're about the same size town. Nashville is 50% bigger now because there's so many job opportunities. The brain drain here in Kentucky is, is probably worse than just about anywhere else in the country that we do have, a, you know, West Virginia doesn't have a town as big as, as, as Louisville. Mississippi doesn't have as big a town. Some of these other poor states don't have a city like Louisville, but Louisville Maybe because of our it's our own nature that that we like being in this this big you know 
small town uh, hasn't really done anything to bring in outsiders. Uh, whenever I meet somebody that's not from Louisville, why are you here? Oh, well, uh, my, my wife works for Humana. Oh, you know, I, I came here for U of L law school or, or something of that sort. Very rarely is it, is it okay, I came here and, and now I'm, you know, bringing my second generation here and that kind of stuff. It's, they come in, they work for that big company for a little while and then they'll, they'll usually like it and then they'll try to set up shop here, but there's just not a lot of business opportunity in a town like, like Louisville. And that's why yeah. I think we're a very peculiar economy here that like I was saying, and for dentistry, I do dentistry way different than my big city peers. Um, and, and I have to approach things quite a bit differently. Um, but yeah, I, I like you're saying, I, about the automation, I know my career is going to end when a robot starts doing my job. And I truly believe I'm, like I said, I'm about to turn 40. I'm going to retire driving a, a robotic dentistry machine. It's, it's in the very near future. Just like I have a buddy that's an orthopedic surgeon. He's like, I never look at my patients anymore. I'm looking at the screen, you know, drilling everything, um, you know, with the, with the automated tools. And it's like, that's the reason that surgeries can do that. Um, is because you have insurance companies that will shell out thirty, forty thousand dollars for a surgery. They're not going to. Sh- they, they don't even shell out at all for a dental implant because they call that cosmetic or it's an unnecessary. And and you know, so dentistry works in a in a kind of a different world. But I think eventually it's going to catch up with with the way medicine is. I think we're just you know two decades behind it or so. Yeah. So. so- all right. Well, to bring it back to this, so, so as we close out this conversation ahead, um, for you, I, I have to know, uh, and you can, you can do this in a positive light too, if you want. Um, I'm curious what has been the most memorable thing for you as a dentist? Uh, what has been either a, the most terrific thing you've ever seen or like a great transformation of somebody that you were able to help? Uh, it could be either. Uh, I mean, I prefer the horrific story, but you know, <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll break this down on two levels. I, I do. I, okay. So I'm a, a general family dentist. I don't necessarily do smile makeovers, but I do a lot of good work that makes a huge difference in people's lives. And I know that. And I have these little old ladies give me hugs all the time. They've been, or, or, you know, they've had something that they've been looking at for so long. I, there's too many of them to count. And I, I pat myself on the back that I have that because it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to, you know, to get somebody out of pain. It's another thing to do, fix something they have been worried about for 20 years. But I, I would, I will say that it, I have so many patients. Oh my, I got the worst teeth you've probably ever seen. And I say, no, you don't. And I go back to my first year out of dental school. And this is this, this kid, Chris, I will never forget him. And, and a couple of the things that you touched on about, like when you're going to the Portland clinic, were you going to take, you know, could your mom get off work to take you there? This kid was that story times 10. He was a Medicaid kid that um, was the youngest of three children. Both parents were disabled, poor as, as rocks. Um, they lived uh, right next to the airport and you know, kind of a really crappy house. Um, multiple times, I had to drive that kid home from his appointment because he was sitting in our waiting room for over an hour because nobody came to pick him up. In his treatment, now he was covered by Medicaid, I did 21 root canals on his teeth, 21. And I kept asking Chris, can you brush your teeth for me? Because I was 25, 26 years old at the time. This kid was like 15, 16. So like I sort of still had rapport with him. And he would tell me how 
his older siblings who are like 18 and 20 still living in, in the, the whatever with their ha- with their parents um, would take his toothbrush and throw it in the toilet every night. And he was being abused by his siblings, basically neglected by his parents. And, and it was best thing I could do just to keep teeth in his head. I did not want to put a 16 year old kid into a denture. So because Medicaid covered every dime of it, I was a new dentist still kind of learning, you know, what I'm doing. We ended up doing 21 root canals on this kid. And when he finally aged out at 18, I had given him, you know, some crowns and, and, and given him a smile this was 10 years ago. He's probably lost all those teeth by now, but at least I saved him for, for a decade and, and gave him something that he could, he could at least maybe get out and try to get a job with. So he's not a you know, toothless, you know, 20 year old kid. Um, but I will never forget that kid. And I'm sure if he, if I ever ran across him, he'd say, Hey, doc, you know, look, I still got some smile. And, and, and I, <laughs> but yeah, like I said, he aged out of the system, dropped his, his, his welfare um, support and who knows what's happened to him. Um, I haven't been able to follow up with him. But that's the kid that I will I will never forget. The and and people ask oh, was he was he a meth mouth? I was like no, he, he was 15 years old. All he he did not drink anything but soft drinks and never brushed his teeth because, like I said, he, his older siblings were were meth, he was the run of the family basically and taken advantage of. And and like I said, I drove him home a couple times. I, I dropped him off at this house. I don't think that there was a window in the whole house. It was, or, or a, a glass window. They were just, they're all broken out. I don't know if his family was squatting there. Um, but it was, that was, like I said, at 25 years old, after growing up in the Lily White East End, going to, to, to private schools my whole life, said, these are the kids that need help in America. These are the kids that I will never forget about him and, and the other kids that grow up in that world. Because he's, like I said, he's the kid that started out in the woods. And he never even found the field to play on. And, and I was trying to get my, do my best to at least get him, you know, onto the field and give him a fight and a chance. And, and like I said, I think I did a good job because he hated me for the first six months I saw him. And then after that, we, you know, we kind of started being friends and, and I was like, Chris, we're going to, we're going to pound out three of these today. Can you do it? He's like, no problem, doc. I'm, I'm here. We're, we're making, pro-, you know, when he, he started growing up and, and three seeing things. root canals oh. in a day. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, once, once, once you've Rick done 10 of them, sucks. three of them in a day is not that big a deal. Good um, God. Right. Um, but yeah, it, that, those are the, like I said, I've never seen anybody anywhere near as bad. I see lots. I, I, I will say this. I do see lots of guys in their late thirties and early forties that hadn't been to a dentist since they were in their teens. And they approach that, that, but most of those guys have at least seen a surgeon and got them pulled. Um, but with, with Chris, it, it, like he was still so young and, and his, he hadn't ever been to any dentist. And, you know, and even if he was complaining about him hurting, his parents couldn't even get him to a surgeon. Um, but he showed up at my door one day and sure enough, yeah, three years later, I, you know, he, he aged out and, and I, you know, he was in better shape than, than when I, I first saw him. But, but yeah, it's those guys that, that have been making that conscious decision. And maybe it's because they're, you know, they're working two jobs and they don't have the extra cash and they don't have any insurance. And those are the guys that, like I said, when Obamacare kicked in for them, we made a huge difference for them. But yeah, at, at 30 years old, it's, you know, there's a lot of personal responsibility in how you're taking care of yourself then. Um, but yeah, at 15, you know, the kid never had a chance. Right. Well, that leads me into uh, one of the things I'd like to close with. And I think you've touched on it a little bit, you know, talking about wanting to help kids like that and things of that nature. Uh, and I'm interested to see, um, 
what your response is here. Uh, your inspiration. Uh, I know that your father was a dentist and I know that probably had a huge uh, impact on you and, you know, seeing him and that, and, uh, and that field and things of that nature. But did you feel a personal calling? Uh, was it a series of events that happened that led you to go ahead and pursue the same thing that your father did and follow in his footsteps? Um, what were your inspirations? Um, yeah, I, I would have to say my dad and, 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 but not necessarily my dad, because he sort of has the same concept of dentistry as I do. It's a means to an end for us. Um, now, I'll, I'll cycle back, though, because his story is very similar to mine. He grew up in Pittsburgh. His dad was um, an English professor at Duquesne University and um, was a uh, negotiator for the steel workers. And in high school, um, he, his dad sent him to steel, steel mills, not necessarily to work on the steel, but like to do maintenance and paint you know, walls and all this kind of stuff. But he saw the hard work that those, those manual labels, steel workers got. And, you know, lots of guys from his high school graduate, they go work in the mills and he never wanted that. He lived in a, a decent part of Pittsburgh, the, the South Hills, um, Mount Lebanon. If you've ever know about Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is a boom town right now, by the way, if you've never known of that, but if you're a sports fan, you know, um, the Steelers have you know, they're, they're um, terrible towels at every NFL stadium because like my dad, all through the seventies, the city was so polluted and th there was no real jobs other than, you know, working in these, you know, still industry. So people, there was a diaspora. They went all over the country out of his uh, five siblings. Uh, none of them live in Pittsburgh anymore. They all left. Um, my grandfather, um, like I said, had him in like the working class part of town, but his best friend that went to his, his, his Catholic grade school um, was the son of a doctor. And he'd go over to that, that neighborhood where all the doctors and all the surgeons and all the businessmen lived. Um, and he looked at all those houses and these mansions, you know, with the, the dad lived in basically a row house. Um, and he'd go to these, like the suburbs that were right in the middle of the city, kind of like our, our Cherokee Park area. And he looked at it every, 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 like, okay, that guy's a doctor, that guy's a lawyer, that guy owns a business, that guy's a dentist. And he's home right now at five o'clock cutting his grass. And he coached my baseball team last summer. And I've never seen his dad, and I've never seen the man that lives there. And he started to realize, like, I want that job. He said, in sixth grade, he decided, I want to be a dentist. Because he saw the lifestyle that dentistry gives you. Is it... That dentist was not the richest guy in the street. He didn't have the nicest car, but he had the lifestyle. He had the ability to make his own schedule, to be there for his kids, to be you know with his kids' friends. And that's when he decided he wanted to be a dentist. And and uh, my dad got um, you know got himself into dental school at U of L. Uh, you know he started a practice, and and he was that same guy to me. Me and my two brothers, he coached every single one of us in you know, our sports, basketball, baseball, soccer, whatever. Um, he could take off to take us on family vacations. Now, we weren't vacationing in the Caribbean. We'd go to Destin, Florida. We'd go to Hilton Head every couple of years. You know, we weren't, you know, we weren't living ritzy. You know, he drove a Volvo in the 80s and 90s. And, and when he got, you know, when I got out of college, he started driving Mercedes. You know, so as, as you go on and on in these careers and you do things the right way, that's when you accrue the, the wealth and, and the stature and whatnot. And I went to college. Um, I went to, to Vanderbilt University. It was the best school I got into. My, my parents made, you know, big help to, to pay for me to go to school there. So I got out of college without any, any debt. And, but my dad said, I want you to go to the best college you can because I know that'll give you the most options. And my major, biomedical engineering, 
Um, they, while I was there, they rated us, our curriculum was about the fifth hardest of all college curriculums in America, like across the board. MIT had a harder one, Caltech had some harder ones, but what they were putting us through was hell. And uh, I saw about half of my freshman group dropped out of BME by the time we were juniors and, and couldn't make it through. Um, but I went into it thinking I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I, I had broken multiple bones throughout my life and um, had surgeries and all kinds of stuff. But then I started looking at the lifestyle that the surgeons live. And, and then on top of that, I could see what, you know, the engineering lifestyle where as an engineer, you're at the will of a big corporation. Very rarely are you the boss if you're working as an engineer. And I, I definitely did not want that lifestyle. And then I looked at the doctors. I was like, oh, shoot, do I want to do another like 10 years of training before I'm, I'm working? And then, you know, work 50, 60 hours a week. Maybe I'll make a half million dollars a year. But, uh, you know, I might not see my kids until they're 10 years old. And I don't really want to do that. And then 9-11 um, happened my senior year of college. Um, and, uh, but if you remember, 2000 was the dot-com bust of the, of the stock market. And so I had fraternity brothers that um, in the graduating class of 99 and 2000, they were going out to San Francisco, getting tech jobs, and as fresh out of college graduates, getting signing bonuses of 20, 30. I knew one guy that got a $50,000 signing bonus. He lost his job in 2001. So the guy that he got a huge you know, job offer because the money was everywhere in that time. And then 9-11 hit. And that's when these guys that were graduating that summer after the, after the dot-com bus were like, if you know anybody that can get you a job, do it or stay in school. And I had already decided, all right, I don't want to do med school. I, I don't want to do engineering grad school. Let's talk to dad. What, what does he do? And I, and, and, uh, I worked for him for a summer and then um, I really saw, okay, what I really wanted to do if I wasn't going to be a surgeon was to do prosthetics. Um, and I truly believe if I was 10 years younger, I wouldn't be a dentist. I would have gone down uh, that road. And with all the wounded warriors that came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the prosthetic body part uh, market exploded. And gosh, those guys, you know, I, you see them all the time. You don't see people in wheelchairs anymore. You see them with a prosthetic leg. Um, Vanderbilt, my, my uh, alma mater, uh, did a revolutionary mobile, uh, like a robotic ankle. So that now, I mean, you're getting stuff that is just head and shoulders better than it was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, but when I watched my dad and realized, okay, not only does he get his, make his own schedule, but he, there's an artistry to what he does. And there, the, uh, the ability to create out of thin air, to take somebody, you know, who's missing multiple teeth, do you know, some stuff here, work with your lab, and then boom, you're giving them a, a denture is a prosthetic, a partial, an implant, all those, uh, the, uh, a crown on your tooth is technically called a fixed, uh, fixed prosthetic denture. So it's, it's fixed in there um, and it's glued in there, but it's just like a denture. It's, it's a false body part. And I said, I can do this. I can do this on a micro scale. I thought I was going to be doing elbows and knees and legs and whatnot, but I'll work in people's mouths. I can do that. Um, I, did, I, I tell any prospective dentist, um, give yourself one week in a dental office. If, if they're doing enough stuff, you'll see pretty much everything that you could deal with. And if you can deal with that, you can do it the rest of your life. And I knew immediately that the, the blood and the guts and the gore doesn't bother me at all. Um, I mean, it's some of it does. Um, if with what, what if it is, if it, uh, for, for news, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, in my office, 
If it bleeds, it leaves. Um, any kind of surgery I send to the surgeon that I share my building with, I let him do all the cutting and dice, slicing and dicing. I am strictly focused on trying to rebuild people's mouths. And, um, so me and my dad have a kind of a different concept there. He was more of a drill and fill guy. He just like, let me get you out of pain and, and we'll move on. And we'll, we're not going to, you know, necessarily go all the way in. But I try to push people to say, let me do this the right way. You can do, you, dad fixed you and he fixed you cheaply and he made you happy. But you came back and saw him every two years to fix it again. I want to give you something that's going to last decades. And, and that's, you know, sort of my focus. But I, like I said, with my inspiration with my dad, not necessarily to do dentistry the way he did it or, or whatnot. Cause actually that's been the biggest bane of my existence, trying to convert his concept of how a dental practice should run to the way I want to do it. But to know that I can do something redeeming to help people to stimulate my, my need to create. And then I get to live a good life at the same time. It's, it was kind of the, the catch all. And then the biggest thing circling back to that, that Louisville economy thing, I wanted to live in Louisville. Um, I had friends at Vanderbilt from all over the world. I had fraternity brothers from Abu Dhabi, from Guadalajara, Mexico, from, from Miami, from Texas, from California, from New York. Um, and what I realized is the people everywhere are pretty darn similar. Their opportunities are quite different in different areas of the country. And that goes back to what you're saying. You're saying I think the people are good. I, I, I believe, you know, Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and we're the players. Like the, 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 the story keeps happening over and over. You just keep changing out the actors, give them different props, but the same stories keep happening. And I know the story of Louisville very well. I'm, I'm a first generation. Like I said, both my parents moved here from Pittsburgh and me and my brothers are first generation Kentuckians. And I hold that in big value because there is something special about this town that, that for all the stuff that it can't get out of its own way, there's a, an easygoing ability to that some people take themselves very importantly, but for the most of us, we kind of all understand our place in the world and, and we're happy with it. And I am not, I'm not a, a super type a, I don't need to micromanage people. I don't need to push and push and push. I, and it's the namaste in my life. Like there's good out there. I want to be part of it. And I know that this place in this world is, is where I need to be. And so like you said, when, when, you know, who's your inspiration? Um, I kind of pulled it from a different couple different spots, but yeah, I would have never, ever, ever dreamed to go to dental school if I hadn't had my dad as a role model to see that. Um, and I'll tell you this too. This is, this is a hilarious thing. His, at my, my dental school class, 80 students, 38 of us were children or siblings or relatives of dentists. And specifically from his 1977 class, we had five children from that class in my 2007 class. Um, so I, my, my experience is not unique. Dentist, now it's changing because the, the public has figured out dentistry is a, a good lifestyle and a good job and in a, a do-gooder kind of situation. So we're getting more people coming in, but the people that grew up as children or relatives of dentists, I think have more of my concept. And the ones that I know that I still talk to, some of my best friends are same boat. Their dads are dentists and they have a lot of the same ideals as me. Um, you cannot help people the way we help people and then be a jerk about it. It just, you, it's just really hard to do. But when you help people, uh, you know, you look at them as a client or a customer and you're working for somebody else, that's where we run into problems. But uh, like I said, I had a great role model to show me that, you know, these are people and you got to come to work on them and where they're at. And um, it's made, uh, I heard your, your paramedic say this, 
that, you know, it's the, the hells that he sees in his job aren't what affects him. It's the, the working for the company he works for. And for me, it's the same thing. My patients, when I'm in my operatory, that's my little Zen room. I can get there. I can do it. It's the, okay, how much does this cost? What's the insurance going to pay? Hey, can I have this day off? Oh, this person's sick. Like all that extra stuff that they never taught you about in dental school is, is what gives me the headache. So that's where I love doing what I do because it allows me to live the life that I want to live. Um, and, and I feel good when I come home at the end of the day, knowing that I've, I've made a difference. That was, yeah, that was beautiful. And I I think that you did, uh, you acted as a great representative of Dentalville, I guess. Uh, I tell people this often. I was like, I know you're not a mayor of said group of people or said niche, but, uh, you know, just speak from your experience. And I think you did a fantastic job. Uh, And I think it's interesting how much we pulled it into politics and life, life in general. And I think that uh, hopefully this will be uh, interesting and kind of pull the curtain back a little bit. It definitely did for me. Uh, and David, I'd like to thank you for your time, man. I appreciate it. Uh, it's pretty wild that I go from being a patient, uh, to having you, uh, on the show. Uh, and I actually will see you tomorrow morning, uh, to fix some botched dental work. I won't get into that, but, uh, but Andrew, this is kind of, uh, your situation is my goal in dentistry Mm -hmm. is that I talk to you like a person, you did. You responded to me like a person and you said, I'm going to bring him into my world. Yeah. And, and that's the beauty of, of my job that I, like I said, like you're, you're talking about your friend at the VA. Um, when the doctor sat there and talked to him like a person, they figured out what was wrong. And I, I believe too much of society is get the job done yesterday. And it just takes a little time to get a feel for where you're coming from and, and to know what you need. And, and like I said, I, I'm, that's why I was so honored when you asked me to be on this. Um, and I think you're doing a good job. And like I said, I've listened to your other episodes and, and those, I think a lot of your other people are saying similar things to what I'm saying, which goes back to, I think we're all in that same boat. Um, we just need to get the riffraff to let us do this, you know, on a bigger scale. Yeah, absolutely. And the important thing to remember is we're all just people. We're in this together. And I, I think that you did a really nice job of demonstrating that from your end. Uh, so again, thank you for your time, brother. All right. Take care. You have a good one. Yeah, you too, buddy. All right. Bye-bye.